From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. And as the announcer man said, welcome to a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio who had something that he felt was more important than to be with us today. So we had to pre-record this mailbag program just for you. It's brand spanking new content, never heard before on Catholic Radio. It needs at least not this particular iteration of it. Uh, but as he said, if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag edition, just send us an email at openline at EWTN.com. <laughs> I'm doing my purgatory by going to a faculty meeting. Well, there you go. Then, yeah. then, yeah. I, I hate meetings. You're, 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 you're not the only one. <laughs> um, <laughs> they, they tend to pile up on top of one another. Oh, also. we had a three-hour one uh, last Friday, Mama yeah, Me. Well, well, there you have it. Um, so you can send us an email at openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams. Michael McCall is producing the program, and you just heard from our host, Father John Tregilio. And your first question today on this mailbag edition is not necessarily out of the mailbag itself, but it is a question <laughs> from my five-year-old daughter, Katie, oh. who is now 25. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> okay. gonna to ask the question the way she asked it as a five-year-old. 20 years ago. She, she wanted to know... What was the deal with the priests all wearing the same outfit? It's exactly what she said, the same outfit. And she wanted to know why. And the other, the other question she had was what, what was up with that. And the other question she had was why do sometimes, most of the time you just see a little white part of their collar, but other times you see the whole white part of their collar. Yes. And she wanted to know what was up with that. Okay. <laughs> well, we basically wear the same thing so that you know who we are. Like, uh, like for instance, Mother Angelica and the other poor Claire nuns, they wear the same we call habit. Uh, it's a brown, uh, uh, brown dress, basically, with uh, two flaps on it, and then they have a black veil and a white wimple. That's so that you know uh, what or religious order they belong to. The, the Franciscan the Friars of the Eternal Word, uh, they have an all-brown uh, habit. It's a Capuchin design. Um, diocesan parish priests like myself and my, my brethren here at the seminary, uh, we don't have a habit, but we wear, like I'm wearing right now, it's a black jacket uh, with a, um, this is called a rabbi, a clerical front. Um, the little white piece here is just a designation that I'm a priest. But you can see, and I wear it myself many times, the whole, whole white band uh, collar. Um, just like you can wear sneakers or you can wear loafers or you can wear tie shoes, uh, it's just a matter of, 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 of taste. Uh, St. Uh, Thomas says, De gustibus non disputandum est. There's no argument about taste. So if I want to wear this, if I want to wear what we call a tab shirt, uh, which is a black shirt with a little white piece of plastic, this one goes a little bit more further around, it's more formal. Or the whole white band uh, collar, which was the original one, by the way. Uh, this is a more recent uh, invention. It's basically that we're wearing black and the white de designates that, that we're a member of the clergy. Um, now, you can also wear a cassock, which I often do myself. Uh, just like you might see cassocks worn by altar servers, 
the priest has an all-black cassock uh, with a little white showing as well. Uh, that's how we designate or people should be able to recognize us. Like a policeman wears a uniform, a uh, soldier or sailor, they wear a uniform. Um, you know, my mother was a nurse for 45 years. She had a particular uniform she had to wear. Uh, so what we wear designates what we do for a living. Uh, we also have um, different uh, pieces of, of, of what we call vestments when we're, when we're celebrating Mass. So the priest wears this colored chasuble that designates what the season of the year is. If it's uh, Advent or Lent, uh, it's purple, and Christmas and Easter is white and so forth. Um, the deacons wear something similar, but theirs is like uh, what we wear, the chasuble, but has sleeves. So again, the, it helps you recognize, like when you go to Rome and you see the guys wearing red, those are cardinals. When you see the pope in white, that tells you he's the pope. When you see the priest wearing the black, he's a priest. Uh, the Swiss guards, <laughs> they got their uniform. So it just helps the people identify you know, what we're, who we are, what our career is. This is the same daughter that on her first, the first Laetari Sunday that she remembered when uh, the rose vestments were broken out after Mass, she told Monsignor, but she really liked his outfit. Again, I like when very... people would say, you look good in pink. I said, it's not pink, it's rose. <laughs> it's rose, that's right. Um, very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. Nick wants to know why God allows abuse or torture. He permits people to act according to their nature, and we have a free will. So just like the angels had free will, Lucifer and one-third of the angels went bad. Uh, he allowed that to happen. But again, we make that distinction between his ordained will and his permissive will. He permitted because that's part of free will. Free will means you choose to do good and suffer the consequences, or you choose to do evil and suffer the consequences. So the fact that you can freely choose doesn't mean that I can choose and say, oh, no, what is bad is now good. <laughs> I have no jurisdiction on reality, but I can choose to do something that's bad for me. Like if I choose to go on top of the, 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 the roof here of the seminary and I fall off, I chose that. You know, you can't blame God. Uh, you can't blame the laws of gravity for it. I was the one who was stupid enough to get it on top of the roof. And by the way, you'll never see me going up the roof, all right? Uh, so the fact that people do horrible, despicable, heinous things like terrorists, like uh, child abusers, uh, rapists, murderers, thieves, all the things that they do, God tolerates because they have free will. And there's consequences to the choices that we make. At the same time, you know, he would prefer that you and I do good and avoid evil. But when I do evil, I have to realize it's not just going to hurt me. Other victims are going to flow from that. That's why uh, we should want to do good and we should want other people to avoid evil and doing good. Um, Lewis wants to know, are Catholics bound to believe in a certain form of purgatory? No. I mean, there's different descriptions of purgatory. I mean, some of the saints, and again, when the saints uh, talk about you know their visions uh, of purgatory, this is private revelation, so it's not the same as divine revelation. Hence, it's not dogma. Uh, you can believe it or not as it's described. And even with the case of Marian apparitions, I mean, I personally believe Our Lady appeared in Lourdes and Fatima, but if a Catholic were to say they don't, they wouldn't be excommunicated. They wouldn't be thrown out. They wouldn't be considered a bad Catholic. 
uh, it, it's something that you, you can, and it's endorsed by the church, it's approved, but it's not mandatory. Likewise, how purgatory is described, I know some, some saints depict it in different ways. Um, I personally like the, the way that Father Benedict Rochelle, happy member, used to describe it. He said, Dante described purgatory as a, a suburb of hell. You know, you're close enough, you feel the heat and smell the stench, but you're not actually in it. But purgatory, from a Catholic perspective, is more like it's a suburb of heaven. Uh, you're close, but you're not in it yet. You can smell the good food, you can hear the singing and the laughter, but there's a wall, and you have to wait till you get through that doorway, which purgatory basically is. Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We're not taking your phone calls today. Um, Selena writes in, My husband is Church of Christ. He wants to know if there really is an unbroken line between Jesus and Pope Francis. Can you help me? <laughs> well, the line is between Peter and Pope Francis, but Peter was handpicked by Jesus, and he says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. And Peter ended up, he died in Rome, and he's considered the first bishop of Rome. It's true, St. Paul also was martyred in Rome, but St. Peter was considered the head of the Christian community. He brought Christianity to Rome. And then right after uh, Peter, we have Linus, Cletus, Clement, Sixtus, all those uh, popes that are mentioned in the, in the Roman canon, the first Eucharistic prayer. And there is an unbroken chain from St. Peter all the way uh, to Pope Francis. And that's, uh, that's easily shown in history. You can even go on Wikipedia. You can see all the names of those. Now, there were 70 years when the popes lived in France, but they were always the Bishop of Rome. They just moved to France for a while because it was too dangerous. Uh, we had a time when there was a couple other people who claimed to be Pope. Those are known as anti-posts, but there was never an occurrence where there was no uh, Bishop of Rome other than the short period between when one died or resigned and another one took over. So that, that's why we say the Pope is the 266th successor of St. Peter. He's the vicar of Christ, so we don't want to necessarily say he's the successor of Christ because nobody could succeed Jesus, but he's his vicar here on earth. Just getting started on a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag program, Simply pick up your keyboard and send us an email. The email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. I want to encourage you to visit the site dedicated to Mother Angelica where you can celebrate her remarkable life. It's filled with photos, milestones, heartfelt stories, and her wit and words that have inspired the hearts of all ages throughout the years. Visit EWTN.com slash Mother Angelica. That's EWTN.com slash Mother Angelica today. Again, it's a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Not taking your phone calls today, but if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag program, simply send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. 
John would like to know, is it true that praying to Mary was not present in the first four centuries of the church? I would have to dispute that. <laughs> um, you know, Mary was always, um, I mean, you have certainly in the Luke's gospel, when the angel says, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Um, we've had the, the ancient custom of invoking Our Lady's intercession realizing that her intercession means she connects with Jesus, the one mediator. Intercessors are inferior in the sense that they're not perfect. Jesus is the one mediator between God and man because he is both divine and human. But Mary is the intercessor par excellence, and all the other uh, saints in heaven are intercessors, and so are you and I here on earth. You know, I get sick. I ask someone to pray for me. Um, I'm not saying hey, I don't need Jesus. I'm asking them to pray to Jesus for me. So yes, in the first four centuries, now granted, the first 300 years of Christianity, they were persecuted. They were hiding in the catacombs. So there was a lot that was done that not people were uh, realizing. But you see pictures, images of Mary. There's also the beautiful tradition, the not sacred tradition, but pious tradition. St. Luke himself uh, painted an image of Our Lady. So devotion to Mary, in fact, um, the St. Mary Major in Rome, San, Mar San Maria Maggiore, as it's called in Italian, is one of the oldest churches uh, in Christianity and was dedicated to Our Lady. Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Um, Andy writes in, Why did priests come with Christopher Columbus and others who came to conquer the New World? Did the priests, did the priests bless the journey and the mission? Yes, they did. In fact, I'm glad they brought that up. Uh, Father Brigenti and I had the wonderful privilege in 1992, which was the quincentenary of Columbus's discovery of America, which you know was in 1492. Uh, we went to the Christopher Columbus Museum, which was in Bowlesburg, PA, just outside of Penn State. The Bowl family married into the Columbus family, so to speak, and those two um, families merged, and they have the actual altar that was used on the Santa Maria where Christopher Columbus had mass celebrated every day. Uh, I believe there was a Dominican priest. We don't know who he is exactly, but mass was celebrated at least on the Admiral's uh, flagship, the, the Santa Maria. And we said mass on that. And um, he brought priests to pray for the men, but also to preach the gospel uh, to the natives who were here in the new world. So, Alan wants to know, if God is all-merciful, why did Jesus say about Judas, better that he had not been born? Well, if Judas wanted to, he could have repented. And being God, Jesus would know that Judas, if he did not repent, he would have known that. It wasn't just suspicion or probability. Uh, in his divine intellect, he would have known that for sure, because God exists outside of time. So that saying that it had been been better if he had not been born uh, merely is affirmation that you know Judas most likely did not end up well, but he was not forced to do it. He wasn't. It wasn't fate. He had free will. Lucifer had free will. He didn't have to become the devil. Uh, Judas didn't have to betray him. But even after he betrayed him, uh, our uh, Saint Peter denied him three times. He repented. Thomas uh, doubted him. He repented. Other than St. John, the rest of them abandoned him at the cross on Calvary, but they repented. So Judas could have not done bad, or he could have repented after he did bad. 
But what he did at the end, you know, only God knows for sure. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Jason has an interesting question. He says, I have a hard time believing in God, but the fear of hell keeps me scared straight. What would you or the church say about someone like me? Uh, Hang in there. (laughs) Um, You know, we make this nice uh, distinction. I was just talking to the seminarians about the other day between perfect and imperfect contrition. Uh, When we go to confession, when we make an act of contrition, um, imperfect contrition is I'm, I'm sorry because I fear the pains of hell. It's imperfect, okay? It's still sufficient, okay? It works. The better uh, position would be perfect contrition, whereas I'm I'm sorry for offending God, not because of the punishment I'm going to get, not because I might end up in hell. I'm sorry because I offended God who loves me so much. It's like when I was a teenager and growing up, I didn't want to disobey my mom or dad because I'd get punished. And at one point, it was no longer necessary to punish me just to look on my dad's face or my mother's face of disappointment, that hurt more than, than uh, the wooden spoon, which me and my brother saw quite a bit of, okay, growing up. So yes, um, your fear of hell uh, is, a, is good, but it's not the best. And so you want to build on that and say, okay, it's just like a child. At some point, you have to grow and say, okay, it's not enough for me to avoid punishment. Uh, it's like, am I a law-abiding citizen? Um, because I'm a, I don't want to go to jail? Well, that's a good motivation. But it's better to say I want to be a good, productive citizen because it brings me fulfillment. It's the right thing to do as opposed to just merely staying out of jail. The same premise works in healthcare. The doctor says, well, it's good you don't have cancer. It's good you don't have disease. But the absence of disease doesn't necessarily mean that you are at optimum health. It's a step in the right direction. But just like you say, okay, there's no disease, Am I doing better in my health? Could I do better? Could I um, enhance my overall health? And the, the answer is obviously yes. We'll keep with the uh, building block basics uh, questions here. <laughs> CJ says, is it true that the primary mission of the church is to save souls? Yes. In fact, it's the very last canon of the Code of Canon Law, the 1983 code, you know, the salvation of the souls is the supreme law of the church. Uh, so that this is the reason why the church exists, to save souls. Uh, it's, it's sometimes given the uh, the analogy that it's like the bark of Peter. It's the, the ship that gets us from this world to the next. Uh, the purpose of the church is to sanctify us through the sacraments, to uh, teach us the truth through our magisterium, uh, but also to worship God in the way he wants uh, through the sacred uh, liturgy, through the seven sacraments. So the purpose of the church is to make us saints. As Mother Angelica would say on her show, we're all called to be great saints. Don't miss the opportunity. Well, God just didn't say, become saints and work it out. He gave us the church uh, as our Holy Mother uh, in order that we can utilize the graces that come to us from God and that he gave, like the sacraments to the church, he gave divine revelation to the church. Uh, He gave us the magisterium. He gave us the communion of saints. Uh, All this is part of our membership uh, in the church, which we also call the mystical body of Christ. 
Daniel writes in, is sinning on Sunday different or worse than sinning on any other day? And then he also wants to know, if in confession, does one need to confess the results of a particular sin? For example, if I overeat and experience pain as a result of that, do I need to confess the pain? <laughs> well, sin is bad no matter when you do it. Uh, it can be complicated, okay? You can compound the issue, uh, not so much on the day, but let's say I as a priest, okay? Uh, if I miss Mass on a Sunday, it's bad enough that I'm, I'm I'm supposed to, you know, go to Mass or celebrate Mass. Well, because I can celebrate Mass, it's even worse because I can easily say Mass myself. It's not like if I'm a lay person and I can't get there, you know, what am I going to do? But as a priest, I can do Mass, you know, uh, so that would make it worse. Or if I uh, do anything that is scandalous, it's not only that I incur a sin, but now I'm scandalizing the faithful. That's why all these priests who uh, did horrible sins of, 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 of abuse, not only did they personally commit a sin, and they're guilty of that, but then they're also guilty of the scandal that they caused. So the context uh, can be affected by the person's state in life. For instance, if I slap my brother, that's not a good thing, but if I slap, God forbid, my mother or father, that's even worse. So the, the situation can make it worse or sort of diminish uh, the culpability at, at some degree. Uh, so, But whether or not you sit on Sunday, uh, on Sundays we have special added bonus that we're, we're asked to refrain from servile work that's not necessary. Uh, I should not use Sunday as the dump day and then say, well, Saturday's my day off. I'm going to have fun. You can have fun on Saturday. Just don't make Sunday the day that you do all the, the chores you don't like and now you're miserable. Uh, Pope John Paul wrote this wonderful letter, Dias Domini, that on Sunday we go to church, we go to Mass as Catholics, we spend time with family and friends, and we rest. You could do that any other day of the week, obviously, but Sundays and Holy Days, you know, we want to give special emphasis. Patrick writes in, I hear some people say they don't believe in Vatican II. How can they say that and be Catholic? What about Vatican II do they reject? <laughs> Well, you know, I just, I'm just i teaching a class, uh, an elective here at the seminary, on the documents of Vatican II. Uh, the Vatican Council is a legitimate council, uh, as much as Vatican I, uh, the defined papal infallibility, as much as the Council of Trent, which defined that there are seven sacraments, no more, no less. Like the Council of Nicaea, all right, uh, the defined that Jesus, uh, the Son, is uh, equal to, has the same substance as God the Father. So all the... 21 councils of the church uh, are legitimate. They're recognized. Uh, they were, uh, the Pope uh, sanctioned them. Uh, but the impact was a little bit different because at Vatican II, it was more a pastoral uh, council. It doesn't mean there were no doctrine, but there was no new doctrines. They didn't reformulate any doctrines. They presented, as Pope uh, John XXIII and Paul VI said, they took the consistent teaching of the church the perennial teachings of the church, and explain it in, in different terms, uh, made it explainable and understandable to the modern uh, genre. But nothing new. So what's in the Vatican Council, like when you read Lumen Gentium, it talks about um, you know papal infallibility. Well, that's nothing new. <laughs> you know The fact that there's universal call to holiness, God wants us all to be saints, that's nothing new. It's just the way it was expressed, the words, the adverbs, the adjectives, People say they don't. What they may not like is not that they don't like Vatican II or the documents. It's how they may have been misappropriated. 
Pope Benedict XVI made this very clear. There was actually two councils, in a sense. The actual council that wrote the documents, and then there was the fake false council on how it was misinterpreted and abused by people on their own agenda. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Send us an email to be part of a future mailbag show, openline at EWTN.com. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's open line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. If you call that number after 4 p.m. Central Time, you can leave a... Excuse me, you can leave a listener comment line call for us to use on a future mailbag show. Robert writes in, what is the difference between Pentecost in the Old Testament and the New Testament? I'm anxious to hear the answer to this because <laughs> I don't think I knew there was Pentecost in the Old Testament. Uh, yes, there. there's the Feast of, 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 of Booths, the Peace, Feast of Pentecost, um, which is completely separate and distinct from the Christian Pentecost, which was 50 days after Easter or um, 10 days after the ascension if you count the actual ascension on thursday all right these dioceses that moved it to to the closest sunday then throws their numbering off okay uh, but there was the jewish feast of pentecost uh, which was completely different um, it has nothing to do with the coming of the holy spirit uh, you've got other these jewish feasts you have you know like uh, yom kippur the day of atonement uh, rosh hashanah um, hanukkah they're all particular to the Jewish religion and faith, and they're certainly mentioned in the scripture. But the Christian feast of Pentecost is very specific. It's the 50th day when the Holy Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary and the 12 apostles in the upper room, and that's considered the birthday of the church. It's just that you see the same word uh, being used, and it's basically from the Greek that just means 50. Here's an interesting question from Chelsea. I hadn't considered this myself. Is it possible that God is more than three persons, but that he has only revealed three? <laughs> ah, I see a, a potential lawyer here. <laughs> uh, no, because the fullness of revelation has been given to us, and God is revealed, especially when you think Jesus said, go baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So if there's a person hiding somewhere... Uh, it makes no sense that Jesus, that God would only give us, you know, pieces of it. It's true that in the Old Testament, uh, the Trinity is not fully revealed. It's implied, but it's not fully revealed. But once Jesus comes, he's the fullness of revelation. And he says, I'm sending, you know, the Father and I will send uh, the paraclete, uh, the Holy Spirit. So yes, the Trinity is a dogma of our faith. And there are no other, it's not a quadrangle, it's not... Uh, you know, a pentagon where you got five people. It's three persons, one God. That's solemn, that's infallible. It will never change. Uh, there will not be any new... Uh... Now, some people have tried to extrapolate, oh, well, you know, Catholics, you made Mary the, the fourth person. No, she is not. She's a creature. She was the mother of Jesus. She's the mother of God. 
the Council of, of Ephesus made that very clear. But the Trinity is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. End of story. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We won't be taking your phone calls today. All right, we're into the back half of the show. It's time to get down to rubber meets the road questions, Father Virgilio. Jim wants to know, was the wine at the wedding feast of Cana and the Last Supper alcoholic? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I know some Christians, you know, because they're not fond of wine or alcohol. Uh, listen, in the story of the wedding feast of Cana, the wine steward, all right, tastes it. Now, if you're a wine steward, you can taste the difference between real wine and pretend wine. Uh, you know, you go to the store, they have non-alcoholic wine. It doesn't taste like the real thing. I, mean, I know people will use it when they got kitties, like, you know, they've got uh, carbonated grape juice in, in, a, in a champagne bottle and all that stuff, or uh, they have cooking wine and stuff like that. But a wine steward, this is his life, his livelihood. And he says, this isn't just wine, it's the best wine. Uh, there's nothing simple about alcohol, but you can abuse the alcohol. You can abuse the, the consumption of wine, and that's what the church tells us we need to be alert of. But not only are we uh, permitted, we must use wine, true wine. Uh, I have to use grape wine and wheat bread to celebrate Mass. Otherwise, it's not real. It's not uh, The consecration doesn't take place. There's no transubstantiation. The real presence isn't there. It's not even Mass. I must use grape wine that's naturally fermented. It could be white wine, it could be red wine, it could be blush, but as long as it's naturally fermented and only from grapes, not from any other fruit or vegetable or whatever else you want. Um, so, yes, the wedding feast of Cana in the upper room at the last mass, uh, last supper, Jesus used wine. And because the wine was used at the Seder meal, okay, for the Passover, they would have known the difference too. <laughs> so if Jesus would have snuck in some... Uh, you know, non-alcoholic wine, the apostles, believe me, would have noticed. And uh, so it's not that the alcohol intrinsically has any um, bad effect. It's when you abuse it and you use it uh, improperly. Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Seth writes in, when the Protestants removed the seven books from Scripture, it left them with 66 books. <laughs> I explain that seven and three have special value in Scripture, while six does not. So 66 could not be the total number of books in the Bible. Am I out of my mind? You're not out of your mind, but you're stretching things quite a bit. Um, what you say is true. Seven is considered biblically a better number than six. Uh, there's six days of creation, so six isn't a bad number. Uh, the mark of the beast, as we see in the book of Apocalypse or Revelation, is 666. But that doesn't mean anything that six is bad, because <laughs> God created in six days. Um, but yes, the 66 books of the Old Testament, uh, which we consider the, the first uh, canon, the Duro canon can, uh, includes the seven books, which, by the way, were written 250 B.C., before Christ, and it's they're written uh, first originally in Greek and then later translated into Hebrew. But they were written in Greek because two-thirds or more of the world's Jews at that time uh, did not speak Hebrew. They were, it was the diaspora, the Babylonian captivity, 
uh, they were dispersed and they were not allowed to teach their language. So if more Jews understood Greek and made sense that these last seven books of the Old Testament would have been first written in Greek, and then they even translated the other 66 books from Hebrew into Greek, and what we call the Septuagint, where 70 scholars painstakingly translated all the Hebrew into Greek and then included those seven uh, books of the Duro canon, uh, and then that one uh, text, the, the Septuagint, is what was known at the time of Christ and the apostles, and that's what Christianity then inherited. And when St. Jerome translated the Bible into Latin, that was part of the, uh, of the project. Um, Bailey writes in, what historical proof is there of Peter being the first pope? Well, the, the historical, I mean, other than Jesus saying, you are Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, uh, at the, at the uh, first council of Jerusalem, uh, when, uh, you know, they were deciding whether or not the, the uh, converts to Christianity, not the Jewish converts, because the Jewish converts had already been circumcised, had already observed the Mosaic dietary laws, but what about these uh, pagans, these Greeks and Romans, uh, Egyptians who were becoming Christian, did they have to become Jewish first? Did they have to be circumcised if they were male? Did they have to f follow uh, the dietary laws? And it was Peter at the Council of Jerusalem who spoke with authority. Uh, he also spoke with the other apostles. Uh, it's in John's Gospel when Jesus rises from the dead on Easter. John and Peter run to the tomb. John gets there first because he's much younger, healthier. Uh, he gets there, but he doesn't go into the tomb. He waits until Peter arrives, out of deference to the fact that he was there when Jesus says, Thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. And even St. Paul, at some point, even though he's called by Jesus on the road to Damascus, uh, he becomes an apostle in a different way than the others. At some point, it says in Scripture, he goes to see Peter. So Peter's recognized as the head of the Christian community, even though St. Paul is very important. Um, both are martyred by uh, the Emperor Nero. Nevertheless, Peter is the Prince of the Apostles, and uh, that's been established, you know, uh, by uh, history from day one. Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We won't be taking your phone calls today. Alex wants to know, what is papal infallibility? Papal infallibility is not divine inspiration. Divine inspiration is where the Holy Spirit motivated the sacred authors to write those things and only those things in the exact way he wanted them written. Papal infallibility is a negative charism in that it prevents the Pope from imposing a false teaching on the faithful and binding them in conscience. He must uh, speak on faith and morals and make it very clear, manifest that this is a universal teaching. So, the two times that ex cathedra extraordinary papal infallibility came into play in 2,000 years, only twice ex cathedra statements, was when Pius IX defined the dogma of the Immaculate Conception and when Pope Pius XII defined the dogma of the Assumption. There's the ordinary papal infallibility, like we see uh, with Paul VI and Juani Vitae, uh, Pope John Paul the, the Great, and Ordinatio Sacha Dotalis. Uh, these are continuing what the church has always taught. So the Pope speaks infallibly meaning, not that it's divinely inspired, but that the Holy Spirit approves in that sense. 
he prevents the the pope from imposing a false doctrine on everyone that doesn't mean that the pope himself might be a little off uh any particular pope we've had popes are not impeccable meaning uh, they're not free from sin because we've had Borgias and medicis and uh you know bad popes throughout history but also it means that we have a guarantee it's like the good housekeeping seal of approval it prevents false teaching from being imposed it does not mean that this is the best way everything could be possibly said but you can assure be assured that it's true special mailbag edition of ewtn's open line monday we got an email from diane why do i need an annulment before remarrying in the church because Jesus said if a man divorces his wife and marries another, he commits adultery. If a woman uh, you know, divorces her husband and marries another, it's adultery. Jesus said that. We didn't make that up. He said that. Now, the only place where that would not apply is if they weren't really husband and wife. And that's what an annulment basically says, is that what may have appeared or what both may have intended was actually not a sacrament of marriage. So, for instance, uh, one of the th- you know, all, both persons, the the bride and groom, must intend to enter a permanent, a faithful, and fruitful union. If any one of those three or all three are ne- are missing on either part, uh, it's not a sacrament. If a Catholic marries uh, someone without uh, a priest or a deacon present, and without a, a, a bishop's uh, dispensation, it's invalid. So the annulment is not a Catholic divorce. It's a juridical decision that what appeared to or may have thought or intended to be uh, a sacrament of matrimony actually did not exist. Therefore, that person can, in the eyes of the state, remarry, but in the eyes of God and the church, enter into the marriage for the first time. 833-288-EWTN. That's our main phone number. If you call that number... After 4 p.m. Central Time, then uh, you can always leave us a message there on our listener comment line call, and it may be part of a future mailbag program. Sal says, must a person have faith and works to gain eternal life? St. James is the one who tells us that faith without works is is shallow, okay? It's empty. Uh, This is St. James, and nowhere in the Bible does it say, by faith alone are we saved. Martin Luther said that, sola fide, but James makes it clear it is not by faith alone. Now, certainly St. Paul, all right, uh, will make it clear that we need faith, but he never says you don't need works. He never said faith alone is sufficient, but he makes it clear that you need faith. And the Catholic Church is not pitting good works versus faith. As Pope Benedict often said, and I tell this to my seminarians here, uh, I quote him, um, numerously times every day Catholicism is a religion of both and not either or so it's both faith and good works just like revelation is both sacred scripture and sacred tradition and I've got an email from Nicola she says I'm I have trouble fully agreeing with the church's teaching on abortion I don't think it's right to force someone to do something against their will can I hold this position and still be in full communion with the Catholic Church? Well, I'm glad they, she posed that question that way, to force someone against their will, because abortion is forcing the, the, the death of the unborn child against their will. 
the unborn child is not asking to be destroyed, is not asking to be terminated, is not asking to die. Uh, they're not able to, but they're not, they're not saying, please kill me. So it's not that we're imposing our will against the will of the mother, it's that she has to respect the fact that this new uh, human being within her also has rights, also has a free will. Um, prior to conception, it's a whole different matter. I mean, the fact that, you know, that conception took place, that was a free will act uh, by mom or dad or boyfriend and girlfriend. But once the baby is conceived, there's a human soul. The DNA of that embryo is distinctly human and distinct from mom and dad. It's not an exact replica. Uh, it's a distinct, it means it's an individual human being. So we have to take into account both wills, the will of the mother and the will of the unborn child. So we're not saying to, in any way, if I say you're not allowed to murder someone, you can't go into a store and rob someone, or am I imposing my will? No, I'm respecting the fact that people have a right to their property, they have a right to their life, they have a right to safety, and that can be taken by someone else who says, but I choose to do that. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. No phone calls today. Edward says, I am starting to read the Bible. Which gospel should I start reading, and which is the best translation to read? Oh, wow. A lot there. Um, I would say start the way the Bible starts. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, this has worked for centuries, or for millennia, I should say. Um, read them in that order. Uh, you can read them. There's, uh, I think Jeff Cavins has... Uh, uh, a way of reading uh, the sake, the Bible chronologically, you could do it that way. Uh, you could read it from you know from Matthew all the way uh, to the end of of Saint John. Uh, that's one way that that you could do that. Um, reading the the, the scriptures uh, in their proper order is always helpful, but you don't have to do it that way. Be sure to check out Doc. The Doctor is in tomorrow afternoon and every afternoon at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday. Dr. Ray takes calls and talks about family, marriage, and relationships. The Doctor is in tomorrow afternoon, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Scott writes in, if I go to confession and confess my sins, receive and complete my penance, will I still have to pay for that sin when I die? <laughs> uh, maybe. I don't know. Um, uh, purgatory is the temporal punishment uh, due to sin. So if you have not, in a sense, paid the price, uh, then you know purgatory will be in order. But some people do their purgatory here on earth. It's true, Jesus died for our sins, but the penalty okay, of those sins, the, the consequence, it's like if I wound myself and then that wound heals, but there's a scar. All right, the wound is healed, but there's still a scar. So purgatory helps us get rid of the scar. Jesus is the one who heals us by divine grace, especially through the sacrament of, of baptism and, and penance. But the residual of that, you know, it, it needs to be attended to. So that's why we, you know, we either expungate or uh, purgate our, our temporal punishment here on earth by offering up our sufferings or... We do it in the afterlife in, in purgatory. Um, Adam says, people say God forgives and forgets. Why is there, <laughs> then why is there purgatory? 
Well, people say that, but the Bible doesn't say that. There is nowhere in the Bible at all where it says forgive and forget. Um, I don't know if it was Ben Franklin who came up with that or uh, some other somebody else from history. God's never said it. It's never in sacred scripture, and it's not in sacred tradition. Because if you can forget, there's no need to forgive. Uh, if I forgot what you did to me, what? Why do? First of all, how could I forgive what I forgot? And why would I need to forgive if I forget? The point is that God remembers everything we do, and we remember. You know, we remember with precision when someone's hurt us, insulted us, betrayed us. Remember the day, the time, the latitude, the longitude, everything. And when I forgive that person, it means more as opposed to, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Okay. Uh, that's not for, it's not forgiveness. So forgetting just happens by human nature. But when we remember and forgive, then it's meritorious. Jason wants to know, if a person dies in a state of mortal sin, what happens to their soul? They go to hell, but they send themselves to hell. Uh, dying in, Why we call it mortal sin? Because it kills the life of grace. Uh, the soul is in a sense, is killed. It chases away the indwelling of the Holy Trinity. Sanctifying grace leaves because, in essence, mortal sin kicks God out of the house. It's like God comes to visit, wants to live with you, and then when you commit mortal sin, you're throwing him out the front door. Um, so dying in mortal sin is deadly to the life of grace, and yet God can raise us back to life uh, through uh, the grace of the sacrament. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we're not taking any phone calls today. Um, Chuck says, in Scripture it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and understanding. Was he born with supernatural knowledge, or did he progressively grow in his knowledge? Well, good question. Uh, the Council of Chalcedon makes it clear. Jesus has two natures, human and divine, but one divine person. In his human nature, he has a human intellect, a human will. In his divine nature, his divine intellect and divine will. His divine intellect is the same. The same divine intellect the Father has and the Holy Spirit, the Son, all three share the same divine intellect. So what one knows, all three know. What one wills, all three will. In his human nature, however, his human intellect is finite. And his human intellect, he had to learn how to, to walk, how to talk. He had to learn how to... Um, you know, hold a fork and a knife. He had to learn uh, all the things that you and I learn as human beings. He had to learn because his human intellect progressed in knowledge just like ours do. Because if it didn't, it wouldn't be human. Humans, we we have acquired knowledge. All right, St. Thomas makes that very clear. Angels have infused knowledge. Uh, human beings, we have acquired knowledge. We We abstract from reality and then we come up with ideas. We learn how to do things. Angels had everything they would ever know poured into them, infused into them. Uh, God is truth itself, so in his divinity he knew everything, but in his humanity he had to learn some things just like we did. Otherwise, he would have been pretending to be human, and that's the heresy of docetism. Um, Ken writes in, Do we as Catholics have a responsibility to avoid public behaviors that may be scandalizing our non-Catholic brethren, though the action itself may not be wrong. Uh, yes, this is called public propriety, where you don't want to cause scandal, even though you've got good intentions, good motives, 
and the act itself may be neutral, but it could be perceived by a normal, rational person as being wrong. So I'll give you a good example, as I use this in class. Uh, I could go to uh, a bar at 3 a.m. and just have iced tea or, uh, you know, um, Pepsi or Coke or whatever, uh, lemonade. I'm not getting drunk. It's not a girly bar, okay? Um, but people see me coming out of a bar at 3 a.m., it's scandalous because a normal person is going to presume if I'm there at 3 a.m., I'm boozing it up uh, or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm visiting somebody I shouldn't be visiting, okay? Uh, so avoiding scandal. That's why couples who live together and say, but we're not sleeping together. You're still causing scandal because you're not husband and wife. You're living together as if you were husband and wife. And even though you're not fornicating, sleeping together, a normal person might presume that you are, and that causes scandal. Uh, even St. Saint, um, uh, Saint Peter had to be reminded by St. Paul not to cause scandal. Uh, he wasn't doing anything sinful, but St. Paul said, you know, you got to be careful. You could affect someone of a weak faith. So, again, it's not enough to say, well, I'm not doing anything uh, particularly wrong. I can't do things that have the appearance of wrong. And finally, Corey wants to know, is Jesus the only mediator to God? Yes. St. Paul makes that very clear. There's one mediator between God and man, because Jesus, as I just mentioned, is both God and man. He's human and divine. One divine person, but two natures. So he's the only one that could be the mediator. Mary and the saints are intercessors, just as Jairus was an intercessor. Just as Paul was an intercessor, just as you and I are intercessors, but one mediator, Jesus Christ. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? Bendica vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for listening to this very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Back at it tomorrow talking faith, family, and fellowship with Father Wade Menezes. Until we get together then, God bless.